Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Welcome to season four of the Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom, where we discuss business agility through customer experience, employee experience, and digital transformation. I'm your host, Greg Kilstrom. The Agile World Podcast is brought to you by Tech Systems, an industry leader in full-stack technology services, talent services, and real-world application. For more information, go to techsystems.com. To read more about the topics discussed on this show, you can go to my website at gregkillstrom.com and read my latest articles or get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, now available on Amazon and other retailers. My name is Greg Kilstrom, and I'm the host of the Agile Brand Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about starting and growing a business without outside capital and how being customer-driven can help with this approach. To help me discuss this topic, I'd like to welcome Brian Clayton, CEO and co-founder of GreenPal, an online marketplace that connects homeowners with local lawn care professionals. Brian, welcome to the show. Greg, thanks for having me on your show. It's great to be here. Yeah, looking forward to talking with you. Um, so why don't we start by uh, you giving a little background on yourself and what you're currently doing at GreenPal. Yeah, CEO, co-founder of GreenPal. And GreenPal is the Uber, but for lawn mowing. So if you're a homeowner and you need to get your lawn mowed, rather than calling around on Craigslist or Facebook, you just download GreenPal, pop your address in, you'll get quotes from lawn care services nearby you. You can hire the one you want to work with and they come out and take care of this chore for you. I guess you could say GreenPal is a 10-year overnight success. Uh, my co-founders and I have been at this thing for a decade. We are now nationwide in the United States, over 300,000 people using this app to get lawn mowing services done at their homes and doing multiple eight figures a year in revenue. And we're self-funded. We haven't raised any outside capital. So it's been very much like a, uh, a, like a, like a game of small wins over a decade, compounding over a long period of time that have gotten us here. Nice, nice. Well, yeah, let's let's dive in and and start by talking about uh, what you just mentioned. You know, starting a business without capital and the upsides and downsides of of doing that. I, I can empathize there. I my first company, my marketing agency, I, I did that as well. So it's yeah. uh, good good and bad here. So let, why don't we start by you know talking about some of the benefits of not getting outside investment when you started your company. It definitely feels like the harder approach, but it feels like the more sustainable and I guess you could say the the greater your chances of success approach. I think raising outside capital forces a binary decision. It's almost like a get rich or die trying uh, dynamic when you raise money. And for us, we just never felt like that was going to be a good bet. We always felt like if we can just make $1,000 this month, we can figure out how to make five or 10,000. If we can figure out how to make 10, we can make a hundred. So it was always just like a sustainable, real methodical kind of just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and work, work the process. And, it, and, and the first three or four years were really, really tough because, you know, 
personally, we had to live on rice and beans for a very long time. I mean, couldn't pay ourselves a salary for many years. My co-founders were working part-time jobs uh, and working on this thing nights and weekends. But the thing we, we were observing kind of in the overall like macro uh, uh, economy and startups was a lot of companies were raising a ton of money, like a million, five million, ten million dollars in money, and then they were out of business in 18 months. And what it seems like is like they were trying to put rocket fuel in a uh, Toyota Camry and it just blows up. And so we, we just took notice of this and we thought, you know, I've got, we've got one good idea. (laughs) I don't have a whole lot of good ideas. This thing has to work. Let's just spend 10 years on this thing and go, go sustainably. And that worked for us. Now it doesn't work for every business idea. It doesn't work for every startup idea, but it worked for us in, in the context that, that, that how we approached it. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like that. Um, that way of explaining things. How did you utilize customer relationships uh, as well as feedback from customers to help you scale? You know, there's this thing that the weird thing that develops when you're starting a business, there's a, there's a gap between like customer logic and company logic or founder logic. And it's this weird like gap that develops between the two. And you're both looking at the same problem in our case, like there's four foot tall grass and somebody needs to come mow it. <laughs> like, like that's the problem, man. And like, we're looking at it from founder logic and the customer is looking at it from customer logic. And, and if you let that gap grow and, and, and kind of, and, and, and kind of like manifest it, like it, it causes you to make bad decisions. And the way we've closed that gap and tried to always put ourselves in the shoes of our customers is just removing all the friction for them to tell us everywhere, we suck everywhere we're disappointing them everywhere we, that we, they wish something would do that the app would do something that it didn't do everywhere that, that, uh, that, that they were happy or that they, that they were let down. And so how we did that in our early days was literally every customer had my cell number. You know, we only had a hundred, but, but every one of them had my cell number. And at the bottom of all the emails was my cell number and the live chat I answered it. And the phone number on the homepage was my cell number. And so removing all the friction between you and your customer is something that seems obvious that like, you know, all of us should do as founders. But the reality is most of us are resistant to do that because we think that, oh, well, that won't scale. And, uh, oh, well, all I'm going to be doing is talking to customers and not working on the business. Well, the thing is, in the early days, you like 90% of what you need to be doing is talking to customers because they will be like free R&D. They will let you know what you need to be uh, focusing your resources on. Startups are a lot like poker and less like chess. They're the, like you're making bets with limited information. You're not, you're not making these like concrete calculated moves that build on one another and you're sure that it's going to work. No, it's like literally you're making bets with what little money you have. And that customer feedback is what helps you tilt the odds in your favor. So, so for me, like a tip that, that, that worked for us in the early days was removing all the friction between us and customers communicating with us. And even still to this day with over 300,000 customers, I still do at least an hour a day of customer support because I don't want that gap to develop between founder CEO logic and customer logic. Yeah, that's, that's so great to, and, and completely agree about, needing to get that feedback you know one one follow-up to that though is especially in those early days when you were literally on live chat and talking direct with customers on on the cell on your cell phone it sounds like 
how did you try to filter out some of those, let's call it anecdotal issues versus the more, the things that were more trends, you know, so in other words, how, how did you kind of keep grounded so that, um, the, the squeaky wheels, for instance, didn't out, outweigh the things that might've been bigger or more systemic issues or, or things like that. That's a good question. Like, how do you know, how do you know what feedback to act on? And how do you know yeah. that you just have somebody who's, who's insatiable and it's just one that you got to cast aside. Right. And, right. and, and, and in the early days, it's very much go with your gut, but it's, it's, it's almost like triaging around. These are the 10 things we're seeing 10 times every day we have to triage around them. It's kind of like this. If, if, if I'm sitting here in my conference room and, and five people walk through the threshold of, of the conference room and trip on a piece of carpet that's coming up, I don't need like statistical relevance <laughs> to tell you we need to fix that carpet. Right, like, right. you know, and, and, and building a product and starting a business is much the same way. If, if you have a hundred customers and you're hearing like these five same complaints over and over again, those are the ones you need to triage around versus the one person who had a weird edge case that, you know, had some unrealistic expectations. You don't need to waste time on that. Now here's the, here's the wild thing. As you scale and as you go to, you know, from a hundred transactions a week to 10,000 transactions a day, those weird edge cases now become commonplace. Yeah. because there's just more activity happening. And so as you kind of graduate towards like that level of the video game, you then start working on the weird uh, edge case. Okay, why did this go wrong? Why is this person upset? And, and you try to fix things at the, at the root cause. And, and one thing that's, that's made sense to us that, that we've implemented is uh, that there, there's, a, there's a methodology called the Toyota Lean Manufacturing Methodology, okay. where yeah. when, whenever there's a problem, they ask why five times. And for us, that's that little heuristic has always worked for us. It's like, why is this customer pissed off? Well, because they ordered a lawn mowing service and the guy didn't show up on the day he was supposed to. Well, why didn't the guy show up on the day he was supposed to? Well, because he didn't know he was supposed to be there. Well, why didn't he know he was supposed to be there? We emailed him. Well, as it turns out, this guy doesn't use email, believe it or not. Okay, well, we also sent him a text message. Did he not get that? Well, we did, but he's got some kind of uh, cheap cell phone service like voice over IP that our API can't communicate with. Oh, okay. So we didn't actually have confirmation that he received the SMS message. We have to build in some sort of callback function on the API to make sure he gets it every time. Like that's just one example of 10,000 things that can go wrong when you order a lawn mowing service. And that we've had to kind of like over and over again over a decade fix as they, as they arise and triage around the ones that happen the most often. Um, so you've created an online marketplace yet uh, you aren't by training or, or background, you know, you're not a software engineer or technologist or anything. How did you make up for a lack of experience or knowledge in those areas initially? That's a great question. Um, so, my, so just in context, my first business was a lawn mowing business. So I, I started mowing grass in high school and over a 15 year period of time built like one of the largest landscaping companies in the state of Tennessee where I live, uh, ultimately building that company over to 150 employees, uh, over 10 million a year in revenue. And in 2013, sold that business. And so I sell this business and I took some time off and I think I know everything there is to know about business. You know, here I just scaled a company to over 100 people, eight figures in revenue, got it acquired. And I thought, well, what am I going to do now? Because I'm getting bored. I should start an app because that's easier. 
<laughs> I, should, I should start a software business because that's easy. Famous last words. Yeah. <laughs> and boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it was almost, it was really naivete as an asset. Uh, if I had known how challenging it was going to be to start a marketplace and a, and a, and a software platform like this, I never would have done it. But um, the only thing we kind of had going for us was I had 15 years of domain experience. I knew the industry. I knew the problem we were solving. I knew that the product needed to exist. We just didn't know how to execute on any of the, the, the technology aspects of it. Didn't know how to build a marketplace. Didn't know how to build an app. Didn't know how to build a website. And, uh, you know, the only thing we had going for us was, was just relentless ambition. My, my two co-founders and I really wanted to see this thing work. We, we hacked together the first version. Uh, we actually paid a dev shop to build the first version. And that was a total failure, but we were at least able to get like a hundred customers to use it. And we got enough feedback to know that, yes, this is worth spending the next 10 years of our life on. And we then started to pour over every single online school, online course, YouTube university, boot camps, things that we could do to learn how to build software. And over like a two year period of time, we, we went from not knowing the first thing about HTML or anything to literally being able to build a website and, and two mobile apps. So it took a long time, a lot of hard work, seven days a week, a uh, hundred hour weeks doing, working in the project and working on ourselves. But we eventually got to the point where we were just, just good enough to where we could, we could build the next version and start to build out a team around us. Yeah. And so Bill, that that's, that's incredible that um, you went through that, that learning process enough that, you were able to, to actually build a, a version yourself. What was it like building the, the team from scratch? Like, again, not, not having a, a traditional, you know, quote unquote background in, in hiring and managing software engineering teams. Like, how did you learn that part of it? So we made two mistakes. One, we delegated too quickly. And then the second mistake was we delegated too late. And it's weird. Like delegation is, is like everybody tells you, oh, you got to delegate and just, okay, we'll all start delegating. And the problem is, is when you don't know the first thing about what you're doing, it's really <laughs> it's hard, hard to delegate. delegate. It's yeah. hard to delegate. You have to have some sort of 80-20 mastery of whatever the hell it is you're trying to delegate. Um, one of my favorite books is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Dr. Stephen Covey. And he, he has a whole chapter, like one of the seven habits is knowing how and when to delegate. And he talks about, like steward, like delegation from abducation, which is like, I don't know how to do this. It scares me. You handle it is usually a recipe for disaster. You want to, you want to be able to delegate from stewardship. It's like, this is how we do this. This is how, why we do it this way. This is how long we think it should take. Here's the scope of what it is. Here's how we measure the quality standard. Here's when we expect it back. Here's how long, here's, here's how much we expect it should cost from a budget standpoint. That's like stewardship from uh, delegation from stewardship. And so you have to get a, to a point where you can you can delegate by stewardship at, and not by abdication. And the only way to do that is to learn the 80-20 of whatever it is. I mean, it could be product design, copywriting, Facebook ads, uh, coding, uh, back-end development, front-end development, secure, you know, build, building a secure platform, knowing how to, you know, prevent your, your, your platform from being uh, attacked by hackers. Like you have to be 80, 20 good at all of these things. And, uh, every time I try to shortcut that, and every time I try to delegate something that I know nothing about, it's always a, a disaster. So I, I've, I've learned that I can pretty much learn the, the, the basics of anything 
and do it for a little bit and then delegate from there. And that's how we built out a team around us. You know, it's like literally like, like, yeah, we need a new backend engineer. You know, we wrote every bit of backend code to this point forward. So we know who we're looking for. And, and now, and then, then from that person, our first hire, we've managed the hell out of them. We've looked, we've, we've lo- looked at every line of code they've ever written. So now we know who we're looking for, for our second person. And eventually we hired a senior person. It's like, okay, we need somebody better than us. And I know I'm like decent, but I know I need somebody like 10 times better than me. I kind of know what that looks like now. Uh, this is who we're looking for. So unless you've really gotten in there, and gotten your hands dirty, it's, it's almost impossible to delegate. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's how I've. I've been told, it sounds like similar to what you've been told as well, that, you know, leaders delegate and, and so on and so forth. And I, you know, I think to a certain extent, obviously you've, you're delegating some things at this point at the scale you're operating at, but I've never been successful in something if I didn't know at least, you know, somewhat of how to do it. And, you know, even, you know, I've been CEO a couple of times and, I always felt like it was my job to know at least a little bit about everyone's role. It, like if I couldn't do their job or at least part of their job, I haven't, I feel like I couldn't really be successful in, in running the company. And that, that I, I, how do you manage that as you scale, I guess, you know, cause that's, I think that that could be a, a danger, you know, if you have, I don't know how many employees you have right now, but at that level, like, how do you, how do you continue that, that approach? You, you, you're always doing three things at once. You're working in the business, you're working on the business, and then you're working on yourself. And so the reality is, is you have to dedicate time during the week, whether it's all day Sunday or all day Saturday, to read books, take online courses, go to YouTube University, reading blog posts from people nobody's ever heard of. Like, I mean, look at Elon Musk. Like, it doesn't matter if he's on the Tesla factory floor or the SpaceX factory floor. I mean, he can sit there and hold a conversation with any single person on that team out of thousands of people. Like, yeah. he can talk to rocket science. He can talk to, like, like the, the performance of the battery and the Tesla and range and, and, and the alchemy that goes into that. Like, like he doesn't know, like, 100% of, of what makes those things tick. But he can get in there and carry on a conversation and add value and understand what's going on at every single level of both of those businesses at the same time. Now, granted, this guy is like the ultimate example of that, but, right, but right. How, whatever, how, like whatever gap there is between you as the founder and Elon Musk, you have to close that. And the way you close that is, is literally like putting in the work learning. One thing I've learned over 20 years of business is to not believe my own BS when it comes to, oh, I'm not an engineer, so I can't touch that. Uh, well, you know, if you really put in the time, you can learn the basics and be dangerous. You know, you don't have to have title of engineer. You don't have to have title of data scientist. You don't have to have title of product designer. But the reality is you need to be pretty good at all of these things. A key component of your success has been continuing to focus on the customer. I mean, as you mentioned at the very beginning, um, you know, being one-on-one interacting with customers and, and even continuing to do that to an extent uh, today. How do you instill that in your team and, and make sure that everybody shares that, that customer first mindset? Yeah, it's pretty simple. Like you, you, you listen to your customer or you will have none. And like that has to carry all the way through like day one to, to year 10 or year 20. You have to, you have to constantly let that feedback from the customer drive the decision-making and there's been goofy examples over the years that I've read, uh, like 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 Jeff Bezos would uh, <laughs> would have uh, board meetings 
and would always leave one chair empty because that was where the customer sat. And I think I read in a book somewhere they started putting a teddy bear in that chair. And <laughs> and so like just but I mean this is Jeff Bezos, right? And right, and right. like this is even at that level, you always have to look for ways to close the gap between executive, founder, CEO logic, and customer logic. So so how we how we do it, you know, we are we're only forty two people, but we make every single person do at least five hours a month of customer support. And it's real easy because we have a chat line and a phone line that never stop buzzing. There's always people because new people need help or or vendors need help or something went wrong for some other reason. So there's it's always buzzing. And so even myself as a CEO or the all the way down to somebody who who is just doing front end uh, HTML coding has to do at least five hours a month of customer support. And then we are never at a we you know none of us are ever arguing about certain things at all hands because we've all, we all have the tacit like experience of no, the customers are getting pissed off about this thing. We need to fix it. Um, and, and something that I just saw like the, the CEO of DoorDash is, has now made, and I don't know if they're still doing this, but as of like two months ago, they were every single person has to drive for DoorDash uh, a certain number of hours a month. Oh, wow. All the way down to like, like literally like senior level, uh, senior level engineers that are making probably 750 grand a million dollars a year have to deliver hamburgers on on DoorDash or whatever you know and so i think that's cool i think that causes everybody on the team to be galvanized around what the mission is and what they're doing yeah yeah absolutely well uh, one last question before we wrap up uh you know what it sounds like you're on company number 2 here so you know you're you're no stranger to entrepreneurship here uh what would your advice be to someone that is considering starting their own business? I mean, we're, we're living through what they're calling the, the great resignation here. A lot of people making changes, um, you know, some moving to other full-time jobs and others, um, others considering, you know, starting their own businesses and, and things like that. What's something they should consider strongly before they make the leap or perhaps let go of that might be preventing them from making the leap? Yeah. At a, at a, so I'll answer that two ways at a micro level and a macro level. So, so at a micro level, um, one of my favorite quotes is Mark Cuban. He says, the least you can live on the greater your options. And so going it as a, as a new founder or starting a business, you're going to have to be lean. You're going to have to live on like an insanely low amount of money for many years, unless, unless you want to go the, you know, the outside capital route. And even then you still need to be lean. And so, like take inventory of your personal finances, get all of your personal debt paid off first. You know, if you, if you have a car payment, like sell that car and, and buy a, a 15 year old car. And, and like, literally you need to live on four grand a month or three grand a month, something or two grand a month, something insane. And, and so then you, now you're ready and you're lean and mean to where you can pour all your money back into your business. So that's, that's like step one that I would give as a tip. Cause I see a lot of new founders, they're like, well, you know, I need 150 grand a year to survive. And I'm like, good luck. You know, you're right, never, right. you're never going to come out of the gate going zero to one doing that. So that's step. And then, and then the other thing I'll say, like at a macro level, like 22 years in business for me, one thing I've noticed is, is like the business is the thing that has always caused my life to be interesting. It's always uh, lended a interesting storyline to my life. So if you look at like, how many really good years do you have? Maybe your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So if, you know, 30, 40 years, 
Like, how do you want to spend those? Do you want to spend those creating something, building something, um, make, maybe making a breakthrough of some kind, helping people, you know, uh, on your team and your stakeholders get to where they're trying to go? Like, do you really want to have impact with your life or do you want to just go the easy route and, and work for somebody else and sit in the cubicle? You know, like it's, it's, it's like you really have to look at it from that standpoint and, and develop that chip on your shoulder to really want to create a, a breakthrough or make something bigger than yourself. And if you can look at it from that kind of perspective, it can help take care of a lot of the grind. Well, Brian, uh, thanks so much for joining the show. For those listening, what's the best way for them to keep up with you and what you're doing? Yeah. So anybody that doesn't want to mow your own yard, just go to uh, yourgreenpal.com or download GreenPal in the App Store or Play Store. And anybody wants to reach me, you can reach me on Instagram, Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a follow and a DM there. I'll hit you back. Wonderful. Well, again, I'd like to thank Brian Clayton, CEO and co-founder of GreenPal for joining the show. Thanks for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom. Talk with you next week. Thanks again for listening to The Agile Brand with Greg Kilstrom podcast, brought to you by Tech Systems. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to subscribe on your podcast channel of choice and leave us a rating so that others can find the show more easily. You can access more episodes of the show at www.theagilebrand.show. To get a copy of my latest book, Meaningful Measurement of the Customer Experience, visit my website at gregkilstrom.com. Until next week, stay agile.